morning, everybody. Good to see you guys again. Hey, before we start today, I just want to take a, a few moments just to talk about a class that we're promoting here at church. It's a class called Perspectives. Uh, Perspectives is a, a class that's really about Christians understanding where they fit in God's global purpose, in His global mission. So it's a 15-week class designed around four advantage points, biblical, cultural, historical, and then strategic uh, each one of them highlights different aspects of God's global purpose. And so, look, if you're in here and you're, you've thought to yourself, man, I, I want to know what my next steps are with God. How do, how do I grow in this faith? This would be an opportunity for you. If you're in here trying to understand how, how do I become a part of God's mission, then this class can certainly bring some clarity to you. Uh, Doug Gerber, uh, Christy Gerber, Dave Smith, they're going to be outside after the sermon today to answer any questions. I admire these people greatly. They'll have a little Q&A time with you as well as sharing some testimonies. So uh, stop by and see them after the sermon is over or after the service is over. Uh, I think it could be great uh, and benefit to, to many of us. And so let's kind of turn our attention towards today. Today we start a new series. And can I just say, I'm glad that we're starting a new series. It's been a, a heavy few weeks for us around here. Looking forward to a, a change of, of pace. Chad, uh, a few weeks ago, Chad did a sermon on when sickness comes to stay. In that sermon, he used the song, I'll Fly Away. And as you remember, we sung that song. And it went so well, we said, hey, we got an opportunity here. Uh, we certainly have been looking for a place to talk about worship, and it just seemed like this was a good opportunity. And Chad was like, hey, let's, let's just run with this. And so over the next month, we're going to focus our series around some, some old hymns that will allow us to walk into some areas of how we worship and then to take some of these fantastic old hymns and, and kind of illuminate kind of the story that surrounds the context and the writing of that hymn and then use that hymn to kind of uh, bring light to some theology and some imagery that we can teach about I know that many of you are probably excited to hear that we're going to be singing some hymns over the next few weeks. Uh, I know that I am too as well. I know for many of you who grew up in the context of church, these hymns can provide uh, a kind of a comfort and a nostalgia to things. I, I wasn't one that grew up inside the context of a church, and so I certainly didn't know these hymns. But here in the last 10 years of my life, I have just grown in fondness toward these hymns. I love them. Uh, probably not in like the original format that maybe you have sung them in acapella. Uh, I, I, you throw a banjo in there and like you're going to perk my attention pretty quickly. So I love to listen to these hymns. So some interesting things about hymns. I, I think that we think hymns are kind of beloved by those that we think are just senior in age. I just don't think that that's true. There has been some renewed emphasis around these hymns, on kind of teaching them, exploring the old hymn books by a group of people that would surprise you. And that group of people is the millennials. And I've talked about, we remember mosaics. These, the millennials, my generation, people who profess Christ in my generation, love hymns. Uh, my, little, uh, my friends who profess Christ just love to look at these things. So much, here's some interesting data for you. In 2015, uh, the Barna Group did a little study on my generation. And this is what they found out. It said that 67% of my generation prefer a classic version of the church over a trendy one. However you want to define those two terms, classy, classic, or trendy. They also found out that 77% of my generation would prefer a sanctuary over an auditorium. I was a little bit shocked when I read those things. Uh, but look, 
We're not all that bad. Like, we've got some good things going for us. One millennial believer said this. I love this, I love this quote. He said, I want a service that is not sensational, flashy, or particularly relevant. I can be entertained anywhere. At church, I, I do not want to be entertained. I do not want to be the target of anyone's marketing. I want to be asked to participate in the life of an ancient future community. And I, for one, echo those comments in heart and words. Like, I love that phrase, ancient future community, that we would connect to an ancient faith that we have as we look forward to the future that God already has in his hands. I love that terminology. And so just know this, that as this expression of the body of Christ, we are moving towards that. That is what our hearts are bent towards, that ancient future community. And so let's just start uh, today by talking a little bit about worship. Uh, Obviously, music is a huge element to what we think worship is. But what else is worship? That's one of the questions that we want to ask today. What is worship? What is it? And then we want to address a question like, why should I sing? Like, do I need to sing? Like, nobody, look, I know that nobody wants to hear my voice. My wife tells me all the time at home, like, you can't even hit a pitch. You're off every key. But I sing regardless, because what God called us to make a, a joyful noise, it didn't say that it had to be good by any stretch of the imaginations. And so we're going to talk about why we, we sing, and then we're going to include our time with talking about an old hymn written by a man named George Matheson, a hymn called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And here's the surprising thing. I, I talked to a lot of people... Most people didn't know this hymn, but I consulted what I consider to be the hymn expert in Jerry Qualls, and he knew it, so I think we're okay moving ahead and talking about this today. So, so let's kind of address this question of, like, what is worship? Like, how would you define that term? Where would you start to define? Maybe it's a feeling of reverence that we have. Maybe it's in the singing of songs. Maybe it's to you, it's a cry of the heart. I think that we have a lot of different ideas that kind of percolate in our brains when it comes to this area of worship. And so what would be beneficial for us today is to probably start with a definition of worship that we could wrap our brains around. And to do that, we're going to go all the way back to the 1828 version of the Webster's Dictionary because I love how they defined worship. The 1828 Webster's Dictionary says that worship is to honor with extravagant love and with extreme submission. I love that definition, that we would have extravagant love for our Father through extreme submission. And what that communicates is that worship is far less about words than it is about a posture that we assume, a posture that elevates something up worthy above us, that is worthy of our affections. And so I want to walk through a few things today that I think will be helpful for us in understanding worship in a larger context. Okay, one of the things that I want us to see is that worship isn't a place or an event. Like it is not a place or an event at all. True worship is defined by the priority that we place on who God is in our lives and where God fits in our list of priorities. True worship is a matter of a heart expressed in lifestyle to God that bends towards holiness towards rightness with God. And worship is absolutely fundamental on how we connect to God. Worship is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that elevates God above everything else in every facet in our lives. Because we worship God 
when we choose to obey his commands rather than making that decision that may benefit in the short term but has some shaky ethics. We worship God by making that decision. We worship God by putting him first in all things. We worship God by giving forgiveness and grace to those who by our accounts may not even deserve it. We worship God when we use his good gifts and his abilities in honorable ways. It is not just through words and it is not just through music. It is a posture in life. And it is not confined to you coming to an, a building or an event to do it. Like You can worship God at home. You can worship Him at, at, at work. You can worship Him in the car, in the tractor for some of you. You can worship God in a plane. And you can worship God in your lane. You can worship God when you're at rest. Or you can worship God when you're at your best. You can worship God in a tram. And you can certainly worship God as you eat green eggs and ham. A lot of Dr. Seuss in the house at this point. So your destination does not define your worship. Your posture does. Your posture. It's a posture that assumes that God is greater and in his great love for me, we surrender and submit to what it is that Christ has done for us, that we would surrender our wills to his. So it isn't a place or an event. It is a lifestyle. And also understand that worship is a verb. It's a verb. It requires action on our part, not somebody else doing it for us. Many times I think we get confusion around this because we believe that it's somebody else's job to lead my heart to worship. But that just comes with a faulty understanding of what worship is. Do you know whose job it is to lead your heart in worship? It's yours. It's my job to lead my heart to worship. When we meet together on a Sunday like this, what we're doing is coming together as a collective voice, praising and honoring our Father. You are responsible for coming in here ready to join together in our offerings and our worship to God. You should be already worshiping God through the week that when we come here on Sunday, it is a celebration, a collective communal voice praising God as one. So what we don't get to do is to blame the church for my failure to worship. We don't get to do that. We don't get to go and pin it on uh, the pastor or the worship leader or on a boring sermon, which never happens, right? Nobody gets an amen on that one. Or the noise that a, that a child says or, 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 or that they make in their seats. Uh, it is about us. I'm in charge of, of my ability to worship and no one else's. And that kind of belief that kind of thinks that my heart needs to be led to worship, that somebody needs to lead me to worship, comes from this flawed idea that we're supposed to get something out of worship. And let me speak to that notion for a second. Uh, worship is, is not about you getting anything out of it. Instead, it is about you giving up everything. Worship is not about you getting, it's about you giving. It is not about you and me. It, it, it just isn't. It's not about you and me. It's not about getting our needs met. It's not about the performance of the pastor. It's not about the performance of the worship director or the choir or the musicians, not in the least. If my focus is on myself when I come into church, getting my needs met, learning something that will benefit me, getting blessed or being lifted up by song, then what part does Christ have in that? None. It, it just becomes you feeling better about yourself, and God becomes our servant in that process. And the pastors 
and the worship leader, what we come to believe is that they work for us to serve me. And if that doesn't happen, then certainly what happens is we just tend to leave. But listen, worship isn't about you getting, it's about you giving. David, right, he writes in Psalm 29. He says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We, why do we worship the Lord? We worship God because he is due our worship. When we sing our praises to God, we are giving to him what is rightfully his for the way that he has redeemed and saved our lives. And in that worship, we remind ourselves of what it is that God is saving us from. It reminds us of the broken body of flesh that Christ came here to redeem. True worship happens when we invite him to take stock and and inspect our hearts to make sure that there is not anything that is not like him in our hearts and in our lives. And the promise in worship, the promise in worship is that we can be transformed to God's likeness because he will reveal the truth and the condition of our hearts as we worship. And then for those who profess and believe in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit that moves and and manifests itself all around us and in us. And in that giving away of our souls in worship, God fills us back up with His Spirit, with the truth and the knowledge and the wisdom and the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. And so worship is about you emptying your buckets, not having your buckets full in the beginning. We empty our buckets to God that He, through His Spirit, can fill them back up and overflowing at that And so know that we worship, when we worship, it's more about than just singing. It's about a posture in our lives. But worship is also about us singing. Like, why should I sing? Did you know that our word commands us to sing? That's a little scary. I've read the text. I have read past these verses, probably because I was just trying to deny the fact that God has told me to sing. I didn't want to sing, but they're certainly in there. There are verses that say things like this. In Colossians 3, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then you have Psalm 105. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wonderful works. Do you know that there are over a hundred pieces of Scripture that God gives us, that elevates us singing to him and to each other. And look, I I can sense that collective tension that I have when I just stand here and I don't sing. I I sense that, like, I I don't want people to hear my voice. Why do people need to hear my voice? Look, God is clear. He wants to hear you sing because something happens when we sing. Because you got to understand when God commands things in his text, he's not commanding those things for you just to obey those things certainly present, but when he gives us commands, he uses those commands to grow us into a a deeper and more profound relationship. It increases our intimacy with the Father as we follow his commands. That's what his commands are there for. And there is benefit in us singing, certainly. Singing unites us. It, It takes our minds off all the burdens and the stresses that we have in that moment. And what do you do when you sing? You let it go and you, you think about those words that you're singing. You think about what they mean. Something happens when we sing. Listen, science is now coming to the understanding that when we sing, that endorphin level in us, that, that endorphin chemical that, that supports pain relief and pleasure, 
they, it increases, and our stress levels decrease. And this is just another of the countless examples of science coming around the good and right designs of God to say, hey, this is beneficial. God was saying, no, duh. That's why I've designed these things for the eons, for generations upon generations. God commands us to sing because it is a benefit to his people. It's for us to flourish, and not just as an individual, but as a collective, because singing unites us together. It just does. We come together bringing one voice of praise and offering to the Father. And as we do that, as we sing together, we find in that unifying voice comfort and support that you and I are in this together. As we sing with one another, we know that we are together. It creates an opportunity for us to know that things will be okay, that we are going to make it through this because I stand together with brothers and sisters who profess the same ancient faith as I do. And we notice this all the time. Have you ever noticed what happens in this country when we have tragic events? We see this uniting happening in, in singing all the time. If you remember back to the 9-11 attacks, Right afterwards, if you ever went to a prayer vigil or some sort of sporting event in the, in, the, in the few weeks after that event, you would notice that when you sung the words, God bless America or the Star Spangled Banner, it meant a lot more to you. You were emotional in those things. I remember watching on TV the, the New York Yankees playing a home game just a few days after the attacks of 9-11, and they sang the Star Spangled Banner, and there was not a person in that stadium that wasn't singing. And their emotion was visual. And in their emotion, you could just sing it, because I sang it too at, t at home, that you just knew that through that unification of your voices in singing together, that your brothers and sisters right and left of you, that you were in this together. And that together, that was the only way that we we're going to get through this. That's what singing does. It unites us in this. It's exactly what God has called us to do here. It is to remind us that this is part of God's design for the community and the unity and the togetherness of His people. It's what God wants as He works in our hearts. And so we sing out of the joy of our hearts, united by a faith in a good God who loves us more than we can imagine. And certainly, here's, today, I will probably be approached by some that, that say, well, I wish that we, we could have sung that song differently. And I certainly will remind you, like, look, don't make it about yourself. Worship is contingent on you, not on anybody else. And I think what is even more profound than just singing some songs is singing songs that this movement of faith, this phenomenon of the Christian life has been singing for ages. I just find that to be spectacular, that we would join together in that cloud of witness of our brothers and sisters who have sang songs for well over a hundred years, that we would remind ourselves that this is an ancient faith, that we are connected to a lineage of brothers and sisters of faith that spans throughout the times that would, that would lead us to an understanding of a faith that is not just individualistic, but it is communal by nature. And that is certainly why we are looking at some of these old hymns, that we might join together singing songs that have been sung throughout the millennia by our dear brothers and sisters who have gone to glory to unite us in that faith. In this, these, these hymns, 
we find uh, just stunning imagery of an act of faith and a deep theological understanding of who God is and just a, just a profound heart cry of somebody in need and struggle. Uh, not that there aren't songs today that don't mirror those qualities, but sometimes I just honest with you, sometimes I listen to the radio and I hear kind of the songs that we're playing and it just, they lack a spiritual depth. They get grounded in this emotional love that sometimes can treat Jesus as like he's our newest boyfriend or girlfriend in this sappy emotional love. Uh, These hymns uh, just contain uh, just a deep theology that sometimes we lack in our songs, not to say that there aren't some present. And so today, we, we specifically want to look at a hymn written by a man named George Matheson. Uh, Matheson is, is not a renowned uh, hymn writer. Uh, he, his, his hymn that we're going to sing today is called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. It's his most well-known hymn. He, he only wrote, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 hymns in his life. So he didn't, he's not published in a lot of hymnals. Um, but his song, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go, just has a a beauty in theology, and just a profound spiritual comfort that I just find in these words. And the story behind this hymn and all the hymns are, like, they're fascinating to me. I have just spent a good chunk of my time reading the story of the context around how hymns were written and why they were written, and I have just fallen in love with the context and the stories behind these things. it's, it brings so much more depth to our singing of these things when you know the depths of which it was written. Matheson was born in 1842. 1842, so a long time ago. We can agree on that. Glasgow, Scotland. He attended university, and, and at university, he just excelled. He was prolific. He was a genius. He was number one in his class. And during, during that time at university, he began to learn of a tragedy that would begin to shape his life. Matheson was rapidly going blind from an incurable disease that would result in total blindness in his life. And there was nothing that anyone could do about it. And so at his time at university, Matheson meets the love of his life, he says. And they fall in love and they plan to get married. And then Matheson learns about this diagnosis of total blindness. And he goes and shares this diagnosis to his, his love, his, the woman he planned on marrying. And he asked this question afterwards. He said, will you still marry me? And to his astonishment, this woman that he had grown to love, that were, was planning on being married to, responded with, I can never be married to a blind person. And Matheson said it was like a dagger had pierced his soul. I relate to that. You relate to those moments when something just pierces your soul. Matheson moved in with his sister, and his sister provided great care and help to him his whole life. He got into ministry, not his whole life, some of his life. He gets into ministry. She helps him in ministry. But in 1882, his sister meets somebody They fall in love and they plan to get married. And at his sister's wedding, he reflects that he's about to lose the only person who has truly cared for him in his life. His sister, who had spent so much of her time caring and nurturing him, 
he was on the precipice of losing that entirely as she moved in with her husband. And during the wedding, he said he reflected on what his wedding could have been. He reflected on love that was lost. He reflected on the disappointment and the rejection that happened because of his blindness. And then he says that something happened to him that was only known to him and the Lord, where what felt like the most severe mental suffering overcame him. And this hymn is a byproduct of that suffering. Matheson wrote this hymn on the very night of his sister's wedding, and he wrote it in the matter of five minutes. He says it was as if the Lord had dictated these words to himself, that he, the Lord, had moved his very hand. It was in the deep trials, in the illness, in his desertion, by his his, his love of his life, that Matheson had come to a place where he surrendered all of his trust and all of his hope into the love of God through Jesus Christ as his Savior. And from then on out, despite his blindness, Matheson resolved to study theology and Christian history as he continued in Christian ministry. Just, isn't that a, just a profound story of these words that we're going to read? And so let's just read and take a peek at this hymn, and, and pull out some of the imagery. We don't have time today to necessarily pull out all the imagery. There's a lot of, to teach on here. But let's pull out some of these uh, this theological thoughts that are contained in Matheson's hymn. Uh, they're centered around four different words, the, the words love, light, joy, and cross. And so his first stanza starts out with, like this. He said, and I'm not going to sing these. So don't expect that, okay? Uh, it says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And Matheson uses this imagery of an ocean in its depths, that thine ocean depths its flows. It's a beautiful imagery of those who have trusted in Christ, those who have trusted in God, surrendering their life to him only to find that the life that they have in Christ is much more richer and fuller than the previous lives that they gave up. Because God has promised us that His love will never be separated from us. O oh, love that will not let me go. That those who profess and believe in the name of Christ, that there is no height, nor depth, nor anything that can separate us from the love of God. Christ reminds us that if we want to lose our lives, we first have to give that life up to Christ. And Christ promises in that new life, he came to give us an abundance of life. He says, I came to give you life and life abundantly. And so this beautiful imagery of an ocean is just a knowledge of saying that when we receive a life from Christ, that abundant life, we can just swim in the depths and the richness of a love that will not let us go. That we can just soothe ourselves in that. We can just float in that. That we can know the depths of it. It's beautiful imagery. He goes on to talk about light. O light that followest all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray that in thy sunshine's blaze its day my may brighter and fairer be. Matheson uses this imagery of light because we know 
that Jesus is the light of the world, and that if we would give, or as Matheson says, yield my flickering torch to thee, if we would give our broken lives of sin and death to God, that he promised us a light that is brighter than the sun. Because in the midst of life's struggles and journeys, when we have that light, it shines a lamp, a light onto our feet, onto our path. And so as a believer, this brings us great comfort that we can believe the words that God spoke to Moses, that all we need to do in life is to stand still and watch the Lord fight for us. There's great comfort in that in knowing that the lightness has not and will never be overcome by darkness. John, in his gospel, says that the light shined into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have a comfort knowing that we have a light, a light that will illuminate our lives, that will not be overcome by the trials and the depths of tragedy in our lives. And then he goes on to talk about joy. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. And this, this is my, my favorite stanza. It's my favorite stanza. Matheson is talking about tracing a rainbow through the rain. And that, that rainbow that we have is a covenant from God to his people, that after God destroyed the world through flood, he gave a covenant to Noah and to his people that here's a rainbow. I am never again going to destroy the earth. This is my promise to you, and I'm sealing it with this rainbow. I will never destroy this earth again through flood. And our definition of a rainbow kind of lacks what Scripture indicates a rainbow is. We kind of have this thought that a rainbow has uh, leprechauns at the end of it and gold, but that's not what our Scriptures paint. It actually paints a picture of a battle bow. A rainbow in in our scripture is a battle bow that appears when skies begin to darken and threaten to open up and flood the world again through judgment, that when we see that rainbow, that battle bow in the sky, that we realize that it is not pointed at us. In fact, that battle bow is cocked and, and aimed towards the Lord himself in our promise that he will never again destroy the earth through flood. And in it, unbelievable foreshadowing of what God was going to do through Christ, that he would someday destroy himself through Christ to bring his people back to him. I love the imagery of tracing the rainbow through the rain. It reminds us of the hope that we have in Christ, that someday that we will be with God through Christ in heaven, in glory, and our tears will cease to be. And then Matheson ends his hymn by talking about the cross. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. What a great way to end this, because Matheson reflects on the cross. He goes back to the cross and says that it lifteth up my head. He remembers in that struggle on the night of his sister's wedding, as he is dealing with all of that struggle, the hope that he has in Christ, that through his death and his resurrection, that life shall endless be. 
And I want to come back to this verse, this stanza, because we're going to enter into a time of communion here after we sing this song together. I want to use that to kind of talk about communion. And so the, the band is going to come out here, and, and they're going to lead us in this song. They're going to lead us in the song. And here's what I would ask you to do today. Would you let go of your apprehension and your hesitancy to be a part of this and singing together as a faith that is connected to both the future and ancient days? Would you, would you remove the hesitations? Would you join together in singing that we would remind ourselves of what we have in this room? We have a community of Christ that through all things we will make it together because of what we have here, because of our faith, because we are united. There's nothing that we can't overcome in Christ. And would you let the truth about worship sink into your heart today that we talked about? Worship is not about you. It's not. It's not contingent on anyone else besides yourself. It's about you giving to God what is due to His name in our lives, in our actions, in our words, and in our hearts. Let that sink in and resonate with you today. That you through worship, would allow your hearts to be exposed to the Father. That you would allow then that spirit, as you give your worship to the Father, to fill your bucket back up with a profound beauty and knowledge that is not your own, but that of Christ. To fill you up with the wisdom and the grace and the love. And would you reflect on the story of George Matheson? Would you reflect on the story that surrounds this hymn? that you would allow that to penetrate your heart, that you would, you would seek his words and, and know what they mean, that, that you would let your heart remember the struggles that you have had in your life that echo the struggles of George Matheson. There's profound beauty contained in this hymn. And so let's sing this together. Oh, 
so Matheson uses that last stanza when he talks about the cross, and he symbolizes the death of Jesus. He talks about blossoms red, that when the blood is shed on the ground, new life is blossomed out through his blood. So today, we're going to enter into a time of communion. We'll re-remember the sacrifice, that blood that was shed for us, that body that was broken for us, that gives us the new life, a new hope in Christ. And so during this time, I ask that you would take some inventory, that you would just spend some moments with God reflecting on where you're at with Him, that you would seek forgiveness in the areas that you are falling short. God wants to hear your heart, that you would ask for forgiveness, that you would get yourself in a position that is right with God, and that you would join us at the table as we celebrate through these emblems, through the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins, through this bread that that represents the broken body of Christ that we are now whole again with Christ. And so if you're in here today and you have not taken a step to say, Christ is my Lord, know that we love that you're here. But understand, it's okay just to sit there and reflect. This is a time for the family of God to come together and celebrate what Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means for us. And so I'm going to pray and the band's going to play a couple songs. Take your time and join us. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you today and we give you praise and glory and honor for an ancient faith, a faith that is united and communal, that lets us know that we can walk through this hand in hand, brothers and sisters united in faith, that we can overcome everything because of you. And so God, move in our hearts today. Convict us of where we are falling short. Expose the sin in our lives that we would confess forgiveness to you, Father. And God, that we would then join you in celebration for what you've done through your sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for today. And we pray this in your amazing name.